Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today in our virtual studios, I have a guest, Alan Alford, who I think you will enjoy very much. So we're going to talk a lot back and forth, but uh, before we get going, just a little reminder, please uh, remember to follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe so you can always make sure we get our updates. Well, thanks. So anyway, Alan, welcome uh, on board to our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. All righty. Now, just for a little bit of background for everybody, uh, looking at your LinkedIn bio, it says you've been the CISO of Polycom, Forcepoint, Mitel, and now Trustmap. Now, some people would say that's really impressive, and other people would say, man, this dude can't hold down a job. So can you, <laughs> tell, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit more about your background and kind of oh, how you got awesome. into security? That's awesome. Um, yeah, so I started in IT way back when, and sort of became the security guy in IT. This is back in the days when there weren't specific security jobs per se, at least not in the civilian sector. And uh, I was the guy that I always volunteered for and picked up the various uh, security bits here and there. You know, oh, there's a new tool. I'll be the guy to try that. And and so eventually I became the de facto security guru in IT. Parlayed that into an engineering career. I actually pivoted. This was all at the same company. I was still at Polycom. And I pivoted into engineering to drive and create the product security roadmap over at Polycom. And then eventually the CIO came and tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, Hey, you're the guy that built our product security program, right? I said, yes. And he said, and I hear you used to be one of us. And I said, yes. He said, how would you like to come be my CISO, bring product security with you and run security for the entire enterprise? And so I was, I was hooked on that idea. And I, I said yes to that one. And since then, as you point out, a couple of different CISO jobs, I have moved around uh, industries I have moved around roles, always kind of staying as a CISO, but sometimes on the vendor side of the fence and sometimes on the practitioner side of the fence. I'm, I'm a big believer in stretching myself, learning, uh, pushing the boundaries and limits and trying to pick up new skills. And so I have, uh, I have done so in my career. And that's pretty neat because that's one of the nice things I love about our career pattern is that you can always keep learning. And as I said more than once on the show, the old G-Mark's Law, half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. And so for those of us who want to continue our career, we always have to keep investing ourselves into to learning things. But in your case, you've had a chance to do a lot of stuff and you've worked in different companies and in different industries and really kind of different segments. So as a result, you probably get to see the CISO job from a number of different perspectives. That is to say, rather than simply being in manufacturing or banking or something else, you know, compliance regulated industry, you, you've kind of seen around a lot. So can you tell us a little bit about the differences that you've seen from, from different types of organizations and what requirements might be placed on a CISO that could be part of their job description? Sure. And, and you know, keeping in mind, I guess, in terms of industries, I've been in the cybersecurity industry itself. Mm -hmm. In other words, working for companies that produce cybersecurity products. I've been in telecommunications. I've been in education and I've been in data services. So that's kind of the breadth of my security leadership background. Um, I have seen a lot of different approaches. These businesses have ranged in size from, uh, I think the smallest I ever worked was five employees and the biggest was 50,000. So I've, I've covered the gamut of size. I've, I've touched on quite a few industries. And uh, surprisingly for me, it's more commonality than not. In other words, the leaders of the company are looking to their security leadership and expecting certain basic fundamentals like, uh, I don't want to get breached. I don't want to get hit with ransomware. You know, there's some expectations on the table that are pretty consistent. and 
in terms of what they're expecting in terms of reporting, it's been my experience that the CISO as often as not has to educate the business on what security reporting is versus having clear cut expectations. It all depends. If you've come in as a CISO and filled in for somebody that was there before uh, and they had a good established practice, then, then what you've really got is an executive leadership team and a board who are used to seeing certain types of reporting and will be surprised if you bring them something different. But if you've come in as a first CISO, which I've done a few times now, you're educating the business on what that reporting should look like. So you're, you're basically coming in and saying, here's who I am, here's what I do, and here's how to measure me. And in the end, I think whether I'm introducing the measurement method, whether the business asked for it, whether it was based on a previous CISO leader before me, there's still quite a lot of commonality. I think, I think heat maps, I think five by five risk registers, I think maturity and metrics you know, CMMI, ITIL, COBIT, maturity scales, you know, some of this stuff is pretty consistent and pretty repeatable across industry, across company size and across expectation and whether they've had a previous CISO or not. Well, it's interesting. So as you point out the difference between walking in as a first CISO, you pretty much get to set the, the tone and you can choose your reporting tools, your favorite models and things such as that, and maybe even dust off that same old PowerPoint deck from the last job and change the logo in the upper left-hand corner, and then you're good to go. But it was an interesting thought is that if you do come in and replace somebody, that the board or whomever the reporting structure has been set up has a certain expectation of how information is presented. Now, what if you come in there because each of us have their own unique capabilities and you go, yeah, this isn't quite doing it. Any thoughts for how you would effectively migrate from the current reporting structure? Would you emulate it from day one and then walk to your new one or would you walk into the first board meeting and say, there's a new sheriff in town and here's the way we're going to do it? So I don't really do the new sheriff approach. I'm not a big believer in that at all. Whatever the business is used to, the business is used to. And whatever the former CISO did, even if you think it's completely crazy, is still fundamentally uh, a driver, a business driver at this point. It's on the table and it's something you have to respect as being on the table. So I'm a big believer in having a transitional plan. If you really believe that that you're measuring the wrong thing or you're using the wrong maturity scale or whatever it might be, it's important to go through and figure out a path from what is there today to what you want it to be and come up with a transitional plan. So, you know, maybe it's shifting of a maturity scale. Maybe they were on a one to five and you want to get us to a zero to five. You can't just throw zero to five numbers on this on the table because you're going to suddenly have a decrease in score. It's going to confuse everyone. You're not comparing apples to apples. So you need a transitional plan to begin incorporating zero to five. Maybe you subdivide the business. You know, there's different strategies and approaches. But at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in the idea that you have to you have to respect what, what was there before and you have to transition away from it over time gradually with a plan rather than just willy nilly throw it in the trash can. That's a good point. I mean, one of the things in the military, we used to use leadership training from General Norm Schwarzkopf. And one of the statements that he had had that I liked, because I used to teach commanding officers, was, when placed in command, take charge. All right, don't just kind of wander around and go, oh, I'm kind of new here, whatever. Like, go ahead, take own the thing. You're yeah. hired to do a job. And so as a result, as you had mentioned, and I just alluded this to in a very recent episode about politics in the office and how to be careful, you can still assert your own style of leadership yep. without cross-threading the rest of the organization. And of course, mm -hmm. that sometimes happens to people and then they get off on a bad foot and then it takes forever, if not never, before yeah. they kind of get in line. So any thoughts on that about how to line yourself when you walk in the door and, and not screw it up early on yeah, from a political so, perspective? 
first first 90 days for any CISO, as far as I'm concerned, the number one verb that should be driving, you know, what you do is listen. You should come in with 90 days of listening, actively listening, actively asking questions, taking notes, meeting every leader of the business, every facet and nook and cranny of leadership in that business and asking them fundamental questions like, what are you measured by? What are your concerns? What are you driven by? How do you align with the business? And putting together a collective picture of that, as you socialize those questions, patterns will begin to emerge pretty quickly and you can begin to feed back and start to suggest, you know, like, oh yeah, and I see security kind of fitting in here and there. What do you think of that idea? And by the time you actually bring a real presentation of what you think the state of security is and where you think it needs to be, by the time you bring that upstairs, you should have already effectively socialized it with all the individual players involved, at least to some extent. There shouldn't be surprises in the room, let's put it that way. And it should be based on multiple conversations and based more on listening than on talking. So by the time you come in and assert that first declarative statement, it, it should be based on more inputs than outputs at the beginning. And that, to me, is just the fundamental rule. Start there. You can't lose. And that makes really good sense on an orderly transition. But what about a situation where something has blown up, the CISO is caused to walk the plank, and uh, all of a sudden you come in there in sort of a disaster recovery mode to say, hey, get us back online again. Would that change your approach at all from you know, listening for 90 days or would you go to a much more proactive mode or, because I would think if they think the regulators and the lawyers are breathing down their neck, they're looking for action, not for right. listening. Right. Yeah. No, in that scenario, which is a very unique set of circumstances, you've got one fundamental mission walking in the door and that is to exude confidence, period. You must exude confidence. Mm -hmm. And you have to back that up and earn that because just to be confident alone is not sufficient. You've got to, you got to be able to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. But, but the most important thing in that kind of a situation is to exude confidence. They're looking to you to be the leader of a crisis situation. If you come in soft, you come in too hard, you come in panicky. There's a number of ways you can come in that you're not going to, you're not going to gain their trust and confidence. Come in confident, come in with a, assertive and authoritative statements about what you believe the next steps need to be. Take inputs, but don't don't be input driven. Be input accessorized in that case, right? You don't want to close your ears, but at the same time, you don't want to be the wishy-washy. Well, what do you think? What do you think? You, you can't go that far with it. Right. So that makes good sense. So essentially, in any case, whether it's an emergency situation or a normal routine hire or maybe a CISO for the first time, as new CISOs, we're expected to have, if you will, our own bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. And for you who've had a privilege to serve in that role a number of times, I'd say it's probably fairly extensive at this point. But for somebody yeah. who's fairly new or they're getting ready to get for their first CISO job in their career and they go, man, I don't think I have what Alan's got in his uh, little carpet bag. What type of resources, and I'm not talking about tools, obviously, mm -hmm. like uh, you know, have a copy of Wireshark, but what types of resources would you think would help make a CISO more successful on their first outing? Your first outing, truly, in terms of tooling, and I'll go ahead, and even though you said not tooling, I'm going to go ahead and throw this on the table, Excel and PowerPoint. Those are your two most critical tools as, as a first-time CISO walking in the door. I, I truly believe that. You've got a tech stack team already, maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe you're forming the team. I've been in both. I've, I've walked in the door when there was no team and had to build the team as I was building the program. I've other times inherited a team and built a program around it. You know, it just depends on, on, on the initial starting state. But at the end of the day, quantifying risk, measuring maturity, 
reporting the same consistently and regularly and transparently are probably the single most important things you can do. And this goes back to the conversation about know the business, meet with the business, meet the business leaders. Everybody has a take already, I can guarantee it, on what they think the security problems are in the organization. That's one of the questions you're asking in that first 90-day whip around. What do you see as the security problems? What do you see as the security priorities? You're going to get back some weird answers you didn't expect that make no sense that you're going to have to gently steer them away from those perceptions. Other times you're going to get surprising answers about, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I had this gaping hole in my program. Other times you're going to get back answers that are pretty predictable and aligned with where you're already at. And so those, those should be the easier sales. And start with those easier sales. Start with the low-hanging fruit and start with business alignment in the sense of quick wins. So one example I love to have is uh, MFA with SSO. If you've got a business that doesn't have SSO, you're coming in as a security practitioner saying, we're going to mandate this uh, for security reasons, but look at it also speeding up and making everyone's day more efficient and more, you know, more beneficial. Everybody's task doing and whatever their role in the business is, has been improved by this security initiative. That is a quick win I always go for. Something like that, where you can prove security has been uplifted and at the same time you've enhanced rather than inhibited other people's work lives. Now, in a situation like that, I mean, MFA, to a large extent, if you're in Microsoft 365 environment, it's just throwing a switch in Azure and say, okay, great, everybody needs it. And of course, you want to make sure everybody has their devices and there's a little bit of training out there, but that's yep. pretty much a zero cost activity. Yep. But if you came in there as uh, the new CISO and said, hey, low hanging fruit, we're doing SSO. Is that as easy or is that going to require perhaps integration from application perspectives with regard to custom apps that might be out there, cross-vendor environments? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, it's not going to be a universal rollout at all, at all. But what you do is you find friendlies, right? Like, mm -hmm. like you know, look, look for the, I love to find friendlies who are also the more likely violators. So in my experience, historically, the two departments that most violate cybersecurity and that have the most shadow IT, uh, which is the term I hate, but I'm going to go ahead and use it here for familiarity's sake. Marketing and HR tend to be the ones that are frequently off wandering in the weeds. And so you approach one of those departments and say, hey, this new SaaS app you guys have, what if I made it to where you could log into it like that? And at the same time could tell you, therefore, it was more secure. And at the same time, you now have security's blessing for this crazy thing you went off and did. There's a triple win to be had there. And you don't have to do it across the company. You can start small. You can start at the departmental level. You can start at the application level. There's plenty of ways to get to get it started and, and to win an ally. And now you've got a head of marketing who says, holy cow, I can work with this person. And I'm helping them and they're helping me and we're achieving good security. And look at me having quicker access to my tools. And next time I have a new tool, I'm going to talk to this person and bring them in the mix rather than just doing it behind their back. Like, you're, you're winning allies and you're winning sponsors in the business by doing this as well. And I think you've hit on a really key point is you want to enable the business. And, you know, for example, uh, this past week, I'm out working at one of my clients for whom I do virtual CISO work, and they got a one phenomenal IT director. Okay. And love this guy. He's brilliant. He knows stuff, takes a lot of initiative, but I showed him different things that he didn't know about. For example, doing the 30-day MFA, you know, I said, you can tighten that down. You can make, and he's like, oh, wow, I'm going to get this thing down in like five days. I said, no, it's not a game of gotcha. It's more of a matter of balancing your tool sets against the perceived risk. And if you're not really worried about 
you know, national level assets coming after kidnapping your people, drugging them and, and stealing their phones and pushing their face in front of it, then you're probably okay with a little bit longer horizon. But it's good to maybe tighten it up a little bit. I, I use 14 days. Simply, I started, by the way, if you find it at 30 and you want something less, don't just throw the switch. I walked it down a little bit so that with the rolling calendar you typically have, it'll only change a few people at a time. And then you don't end up lighting up your help desk when you just put 50% of your people locked out of their system at a time when they might need things. But you'd mentioned earlier about one of the early tasks doing as a CISO is quantifying risk. And as we look at quantifying risk, cybermetrics, looking at maturity of organizations, have you seen any standards or normalization emerging across these different lines of business that tend to be well-respected for everyone? Not yet. Not yet, honestly. Um, and it's crazy to me that we're still sort of the wild, wild west in this regard. You've got FAIR, for example. Factor analysis. Information risk. Information risk. Yeah. And it's a solid methodology for quantifying risk. It's better than, say, you know, CBSS or some of these earlier precursors that attempted to do the same, which is certainly better than the five by five grid. Uh, which is certainly better than the non-gridded heat map, which is certainly better than the, you know, fill in the blank. It goes on and on and on. Uh, and there's alternatives to FAIR that are just Monte Carlo Sims and other things of that sort. So the reality is there's a massive wealth of options out there. Different businesses are going to simply adopt the one they prefer and science be damned in some cases. You know, like there are situations where you can demonstrably prove I'm getting more accurate results from, say, a Monte Carlo sim than I am from a five by five grid with, you know, orthogonal numbers or uh, ordinal numbers, rather orthogonal, uh, ordinal numbers. <laughs> They're orthogonal. You're really in trouble. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're ordinal. making a lot of progress, but we're not going anywhere or vice versa. Yeah, <laughs> We're all over the place. We're all over the map. But the point is, you can demonstrate that some of these methods are more accurate than others and produce more accurate results. But there may not be a business appetite. I, I know for a fact I've got some CEO friends, one of whom describes FAIR as, and I quote, a chemistry experiment. Like, I don't want to see all this jibber jabber. Five by five is fine by me. I need a high level mm -hmm. stroke. I need to understand at, a, at, a, at, a, at an upper level, you know, impact and likelihood. Back to your analogy. Let's say there is a likelihood that, that national, you know, nation state attackers are after you. Well, what's the likelihood of them actually going as far as to kidnap your guy, cut off his thumb, you know, use his thumb to fingerprint his phone and get into his phone with his cut off thumb? Like, there's these incredibly unlikely scenarios. And so likelihood and impact are still certainly, and obviously if they did do that and it was the CFO, that'd be a bad thing. So there's a high impact, low likelihood scenario. I, I think these tools are still perfectly viable and used in conjunction with other models like maturity overlays. And again, million to choose from CMMI, COVID, ITO. We already talked about that. You can start to triangulate. Let's say that a five by five is perfectly acceptable to the business may not be the most accurate and the fair, the fair folks will certainly, you know, decry it, but, but let's say it's good enough. And it's combined with a maturity model. It doesn't matter. Pick one, CMMI. And you begin to consistently report against that measurement of risk with that maturity model. You begin to incorporate more and more aspects of the business into that same presentation and analysis model. Eventually you reach an internally consistent play regardless of the original sources. And that tends to be more than enough for most businesses. Yeah, so if we start out then, as you say, with a simple, the five by five impact versus the probability and very low, low, medium, high, very high, at some point in time, there's going to be a mapping. And mm -hmm. typically we map them different colors, green going to yellow, maybe going to red. But ultimately, if you're trying to get into a numeric 
situation like a fair model where you're actually going to go ahead and plug everything in to get this big giant you know, mother of all equations so we can say here is your risk is yeah ultimately what it comes down to is being able to influence the decision makers who can then effectively implement your risk recommendations and so one of the warnings that I would offer, and then let me see if you agree with this, is don't get too fancy. Don't get so wrapped up in your analysis and your model and trying to look like you're the smartest kid on the block. You may be. In fact, that's probably why I got hired for the job. But that's not going to, at the end of the day, influence a CEO to write you a check to go ahead and implement the security countermeasures. Full agreement. And even those who endorse FAIR, for example, that I know, most of them will tell you they don't take fair to the board. They use fair in their office and take the outputs to the board. And if challenged, they can produce fair to say, well, here, there's all this complicated scientific mathematical blah, blah, blah that generated these results. Oh, okay, cool. It looks like you got a method and a model. We don't need to know the details. Move on. So full, full agreement. And, and I think even those who do advocate the more complex models don't generally drag them out on, on display, right? Mm -hmm. Now, with respect to influencing executives, one of the things that's often used for a lot of areas of business is ROI, return on investment. I go ahead and I buy a new, faster production equipment, and then after so many months, it's making more widgets than I were before I'm in the black, I'm ahead of the thing. But when it comes to security, CISA walks in there and it says, hey, here's my budget, and uh, the budget committee or whatever says, well, last year we gave you a million dollars for cybersecurity and nothing happened. So why should we give you another billion dollars for cybersecurity? Because we want nothing to happen. How do you, how do you recommend a response to that one? Right. No. And I've actually I've actually been there, and it's the old. Um, do you know why there's no any there's no elephants in my front yard right now? It's because I scared them away when it, by by shouting boo. The proof is there's no elephants in my front yard, so clearly shouting boo works, right? That's that's the logic. That's that's what they're tearing at, and the reality is you've got a couple of measurements here. So, so first and foremost, back to the, let's say we've agreed to a measurement model and a maturity model. You should have three things. You should triangulate every move you make as a CISO on three things. One is that maturity model. The other one is actually known risks. Let's get a list, a stack of known risks. This is business 101 since before cyber is a risk register. That was around long before cyber was around. And then the last one is business objective alignment, right? That's your three legs of your stool right there. Maturity, risk, business, business alignment. And if you can demonstrate at every turn, you give me $100 and I will drive maturity from X to Y. I will reduce known risks one, two, and three. And I will facilitate uh, or possibly even achieve business objectives A, B, and C as a result of that $100 versus if I spent the same $100 over here, it'd be a wildly different set of results. If you can articulate to that level, then you don't engage them about the higher nothing happens conversation. No, 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 that's not, that's way too broad a stroke. Let's talk about the actual risk. Let's talk about the actual maturity and let's talk about the actual business objectives. And I can demonstrate to you now, oh, look, the hundred I spent last year, or in your case, the million bucks I spent last year was applied in the following ways. And we did this to the risk, this to the maturity and this to the business objectives. I'm now asking for a re-up of some percentage of that because generally your recurring is going to be less than your initial, right? As well as some new initial. And here's exactly, again, maturity, risks, objectives, how it's going to actually impact you. And as long as you are controlling the conversation with those three legs of that stool, in my mind, you're always going to be successful. And I think it's wonderful insight. Again, kind of repeating for everybody, maturity, risk, and then your business objectives. You're focusing on those three things rather than, hey, look at the latest, brightest, shiny new toy that we've got in here. Now, one of the things we used to joke about years ago is that 
security was never an ROI. It was an ROSI, a return on seatbelt investment. It basically said, how much does it cost you to buckle your seatbelt? Well, really pretty much nothing. Well, how much is it going to make a difference in your life if you're in a head-on collision? Literally make, you know, it'll save your life. And I had a roommate of mine from years ago in college. He worked as a paramedic. He said he never took a seatbelt off a dead body right. when he was dead a crash cleanup. So for the most part, what we're finding then is that the seatbelt does a great for you. But the problem that a lot of people get into is they say, well, wait a minute, I haven't been in a head-on collision. I've never even been in a horrible collision. And therefore, why bother? And thus, maybe we can use some real-world examples to kind of walk them onto target. Like, don't think about yourself, but would you let your child run around the back seat without right. that? You know, forget about cops pulling you over. Is it really right. worth jeopardizing the lives of your children? over what could be an external event, somebody going through a red light, it's not your fault. You're doing everything right. Right, right. right. That's, a good, that's a good metaphor. And it, and it ties into, it's interesting, when I present to the board, uh, everything we just discussed about the three legs of the stool, here's what I spent and here's what we got. Here's what I'm asking for and where I'm going to take us next, right? And here's the justification and the rationale. And so now you've got this continuous dialogue. Quarter over quarter, you have this nice dialogue. I said X, you gave me Y, I achieved Z. Now I'm asking for X, for Y, for Z, and, and on and on. But one thing that a, a fellow CISO, a friend of mine years ago told me is, don't just walk them through those physics. Once you have them trained for that, and you're going through that exercise every quarter, you should always have one extra slide bolted onto the back of your deck. And I said, well, what should that slide be? He said, the latest and greatest news about all the bad things happening out there in cyberland. And you <laughs> should have a clear cut, short elevator pitch story for how we are addressing every one of those bad things. And ideally, tying it back to that cycle you've already established of business objective risk and maturity. And so that, I think, is your is your kids in the backseat story. You're actively tackling it. Because I've had board members, I call it airline magazine syndrome, where a board member was flying on American Airlines or Delta or wherever, read the magazine, found the half-page article about the latest cyber threat is, you know, whatever, ransomware, whatever. And so now the board is asking, what are we doing about ransomware, you know, flipping through the magazine to see the, and it's that kind of thing. Popular press influences them. You should be proactively in front of that. And and it's helping you with those kid in the backseat scenarios as well. Mm -hmm. Now, does it make sense to sort of save up your communications for the executives for that one big meeting a quarter or one big meeting a year? Or is there a value in having some slow, almost like a newsletter, but not a big one, something really, really short, just to kind of keep those decision makers in the loop proactively. So for example, when I see something in the press, when something was breached or whatever, I'll try to get ahead of it. I remember when iPhone had a, had a breach and we all had uh, iPhone devices that night, I said, Hey, this vulnerability has been discovered. We've gone ahead and done this to block it. Okay. It comes from your CISO at eight thirty or nine o'clock at night. I actually kind yeah. of push that to all the executives. The next yep. morning, it's the head story on the Today Show and all the news broadcasts. At which you were point, ahead of it. We're ahead of it, even if we didn't do much about it in those twelve hours. Right. The fact is that you can get that out, and as long as you don't overuse it, I think yep. that bully pulpit can be helpful. Yeah, no, I fully agree, and and it ties back to what we were talking about originally about the the ninety day whip around, right? If you're simply transmitting to the board every 90 days and haven't gone through with the individual board members, if you're simply transmitting to the executive leadership team and haven't talked to the individual members, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. 
there should be no surprises, right? Small, small check-ins, even, even if it's just a quick conversation with, you know, oh yeah, on Thursday, I happen to mention to the CIO, blah, 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 about cyber that we're working on. And then maybe the next week CMO heard a little bit about this other thing. As long as you're dropping those nuggets here and there, as long as you're showing them we're proactive, as long as you're showing them there's a path and a vision and positive progress and steps being taken, then the bigger presentation flows from that knowledge and that knowledge sharing, right? Mm -hmm. So if it all goes well, and then the executive team says, hey, Alan, that was awesome. How much you want? The question that I think a lot of security executives wonder is what percentage of what budget should go to security? And we've seen everything from studies say, well, 4% or whatever, or you go all the way back to Richard Clark 20 some odd years ago who said, most companies spend more money on coffee than they do on cybersecurity. And that was probably true 24 years ago. Uh, today, hopefully not, although if they do, they better have really good coffee. I was going to say, it depends on the quality of the coffee. That's, that's a good <laughs> point. But what's your thought in terms of the budgeting? What do we tar Where do we target? I mean, is there a well-established range or is it, quote unquote, whatever you can get away with? I'm going to break protocol completely and say that there is no range, and and it's not about what we should get away with either. I'm I'm uh, I'm completely uh, I disbelieve in that entire question, quite honestly. Like, and here's why: if you express security as a percentage of anything, it could be the IT budget, it could be the overall revenue, it could be the whatever, whatever, whatever. All you're doing there is fooling yourself into saying, well, if our competitors are all doing four percent and we're doing four percent, then we're doing enough. What is enough? Enough should be expressed in terms of, guess what? Maturity, risk, and business objectives. I'm back to the three legs of the stool. I don't ever want my budget conversation to be about percentages of anything. I want it to be about, here's the money I'm asking for, because here's exactly the goals I've got, and here's exactly how that money is going to achieve those goals. And whatever that amount of money comes out to is what that amount of money comes out to. And that's not what I can get away with either, because I'm coming in with a very measured, very forward-looking, very planned approach. And the conversation should be, if I add up those three things and I'm asking for, we're going to make up numbers. Now I'm asking for a million dollars and they come back and say, you're only getting 850. I should have my fallback positions already understood. And it should again be ranked by maturity, risk, and business objectives. And I should be able to say, well, if it's only 850, these are the three things that get dropped. Understand that we're all on the same page. This is what we're dropping. We're funding these others. 850, we're cool. We're cool. Let's go. That's what the budget conversation should be like to me. And any other model to me is broken. And what that fundamentally says, and I've been advocating this for a number of years, is as a senior cybersecurity expert in the organization, we should be helping our decision makers, our leadership make informed risk-based decisions. That's it. And that's essentially what you've offered there to say, okay, we can do 850, but here's what gets left behind. Yeah. And if that's an acceptable risk... Very well. But there's also sort of the CYA element of that, that you want to confirm that in an email or something like that, instead of it just be a verbal conversation. Right. So if something does hit the fan, they don't go, hey, Alan, you know, you left us exposed. It's like, well, let's go back and refer to it. And I've seen right. people from time to time where they advocated for something, they didn't get it. They documented it that way. Mm -hmm. When something blew up, one of the executives like, yeah, we're looking for a scapegoat. looks like it's going to be you. And without saying anything, you just you know, re, you know, replied with the attachment of an right. email. And all of a sudden that conversation went to zero. Yeah, exactly. The scapegoat conversation vanishes very quickly. So I, I would like to believe in a world where that kind of BS didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I have seen it. 
I have never personally been scapegoated. Somehow I have avoided that my entire career, but I have plenty of peers and plenty of friends who've been through it. That is a good defense against it. I would love to think that that's not a consideration you should have to have, but a little insurance policy never hurts. So full agreement on that methodology. As we look at how do we conduct ourselves as CISOs, question sometimes comes up from the perspective of visions and values. That is to say, where does that come from? Is there a you know, reading from the book of CISO that you turn to in chapter two, verse seven says, thou shalt do this, and then it's really yeah. easy. Is it absolutely independent, whatever you come up with? Is there something in between doctrine and pure creativity that makes sense for folks in a leadership role here? Yeah, that's a great question. It's in between. And I'm going to caveat what I say with the fact that I've got a lot of experience doing this, a lot of experience doing this. And for me, walking into a new shop, I have a toolkit I've brought with me that's been battle tested, that I know has worked in multiple other environments, and that is going to be my go-to starting position for this new environment. Now, that's not to say I'm going to automatically start hammering on what looks like a nail, but I've got a hammer and a wrench in my toolkit. And generally speaking, I know enough from a bolt from a nail and I can, I can kind of go from there. I've got kit that I'll bring with. And when I say kit, I don't just mean technology stack. I mean everything, processes, people, templates, you know, paradigms, uh, measurements, metrics, KPIs, KRIs, you know, all this good stuff. There are things I'm going to do that I've just learned from experience. Yeah, let's bring these forward, start with these and see, see how well they stick to this organization. But the odds are high that it will stick. When I got started, I didn't have all of that. And... I found talking to peers to be one of the best and, and most critical things. Learning from other CISOs who'd, who'd been further down and done more of it than I had. You know, these days it's so much easier than back then. Back then, when I got started, it was not, you know, we didn't have Slack back then. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's so many forums and places now, LinkedIn and Slack and other communities and virtual communities and local meetups and ISACA and ISC Squared and ISSA and all these organizations. There's a million and one ways to find peers and get advice from them if you're stuck and have questions or, hey, where, what's my good starting position? There's also now a million books out there that didn't used to be out there. Good friends of mine have written a number of really good books. Gary Hayslip, Matt Stamper, Bill, who've written the CISO Desktop Reference Series, fantastic set of books. Grab those. There's great notes in there. You know, uh, Chris Costaldo just released one specifically for startups. Helen Patton did one on hiring and getting your cyber career going. Like there's just a million and one really good cyber books out there now. I've, you know, I, I, I've been tempted to write one myself and it almost feels like at this point, there's already enough of them. We've already got a wealth of books out there. So read the books, circle up with your peers, use what sticks and use what you learn in your, in your, in your path to CISO, but be prepared to adjust it. You know, it's the old adage of, uh, well, got you here, won't keep you here, but, but that shouldn't stop you from at least picking it up and trying it. Unless it's just bloody obvious, it won't work. Well, I don't have my, I'm not Googling in front of me, but I remember that there was a director of the U.S. Patent Office over 100 years ago who basically said everything that could be invented has been invented. And so with respect to writing a book, I kind of in the same category as you. I've always thought that the problem is since everything changes so quickly, you know, we're back to G. Mark's law, 18 months, every half of which you know is obsolete. It almost seems like writing a book is an effort that to say, but unless I'm going to say, here's the TCP IP protocol stack, and right. this is not going to change. It's been there since 1980 when the RFCs came out. 
it, it's a little bit frustrating. And so as a result, it's kind of a passing uh, opportunity, which kind of brings me to my next thought or my question. I hadn't introduced this before. You do a podcast and mm-hmm. it's a Cyber Ranch podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that people who enjoyed listening to you on this call say, I want more of that guy. So tell me a little bit about more what you do with the Cyber Ranch podcast. So I do a different topic each show, something in cyber, obviously. And I pick a different guest for each show. And my number one MO is I'll meet with the guest ahead of time and ask them what in cyber has got you jazzed? Like, what are you into in cybersecurity these days? And we'll, we'll form a show around that conversation. So it's a wealth of topics. I, I think y'all's show gets way more praise than mine does for being so practical and concrete and tangible. And, you know, here's some literally just take this step, take this step, do this thing, do this thing, kind of prescriptive CISO guidance. Mine's a little more ephemeral than that because there's a lot more of the human side, the human story in it. And and sometimes we get in more tangential topics. I did a show with Kelly Shortridge on behavioral economics and cybersecurity, much more intellectual and heady stuff than a, than a practical how-to for a CISO. So it's a different vibe. It's a different show. But as much as I appreciate y'all's show and, you know, you guys have got a great listenership and I think, I think you, you're doing a phenomenal job. Hopefully some of your listeners will enjoy my show. Come check it out. The topics are, you know, per show. So just buffet style, go, go listen to one show you like and blow off the other ones if you want to. Well, it's, it sounds good. So I guess if I, had, if I kind of turned this part of CISO Tradecraft into a mini Cyber Ranch podcast, I would probably say, uh, Alan, what are you into? Because <laughs> so, usually the host never gets asked this stuff. So now you right. get a chance to be on the, uh, on the there couch. There you go. All right. So honestly, a little bit about what we talked about. This, this idea that we can standardize our industry in terms of that alignment to maturity, alignment to risk, alignment to business objectives. This is what's got me most excited right now in cyber. This is what I actually, uh, my last job as a practitioner CISO at NTT Data Services, I left there and I came to a little startup called TrustMap. That's the space we're hammering on right now. That's that's what I'm doing all day, every day right now is trying to solve that problem in, in a way that's beneficial to all CISOs. You know, that's probably got me the most jazzed of any of it. But back to the book idea, if I do write one, I'm going to write one about being the company's first CISO. There's plenty of, so you are a first time CISO books. But I want to write a book called Their First CISO because it's a unique skill set. Walking in the door to simultaneously tell somebody I'm here to solve your problems. And by the way, here's how to measure me. And by the way, here's the hammer to hit me on the head with if I fail. And you're, you're, it's a whole different set of skills to be their first CISO because you're having to explain what you're doing while you're doing it. You're having to hold yourself to a higher level of a transparency and accountability than you do in a lot of other circumstances. It's, it's a real challenge. And so I, 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 might, I might write a book on that one day. All right, so we got at least two things out of that. You're excited about the message of the maturity risk and business objective triad, that three-legged stool. Okay, so fine. So we'll put we'll put Alan's name on the side of that. Alan's stool. Okay, we'll we'll name it for you. And of course, the opportunity to to write a book. How about just like personally? I mean, just you know, do you go out and you know drink Irish whiskeys? Do you go ahead and run marathons? Uh, so yeah, I do. I'm working at a cybersecurity startup, so that's you know. Hours and hours and hours and hours of every day. And then I have a cybersecurity podcast, you know, to relax. So, so sleep would then qualify as sort of an entertaining activity when you get to it. In between, <laughs> I do actually collect fine whiskeys. I work out some, uh, nowhere near as much as I should. I, I'm, I'm into Japanese whiskeys of late uh, versus, say, the Irish or the Scottish or some of the other options. A lot of American stuff as well. But 
that's really about it. I, in theory, play retro video games. I have a huge retro video game collection that never gets touched anymore. And I have a mountain bike I don't ride as well. So it looks like the intellectual pursuits, or if, if you can look over my shoulder, now, of course, the viewers can't see that, but you can. I've got uh, a Japanese whiskey advent calendar <laughs> behind me. A good friend of mine out in California had been learning about Japanese whiskey. He said, gee, Mark, what do you know about Japanese whiskey? He said, like, not much. He says, look for this in the mail. And sure enough, a few days later, boom, shows up 24 bottles of Japanese whiskey. Now, nice. not big ones, little dram, yeah, you know, points yeah, out, yeah. You know, three, you know, three centiliters, but a different one for every day. And so nice. I started taking notes on that. I said, oh, this is really good. And this one's like, hmm, it's sort of something. I guess they, they drained this thing out of a transmission. And then it turned out that every single one I really liked goes for about 200 bucks. And the ones I don't like were like, yeah, you can't give them away. So Yeah, it's, it's funny how that can occur. Cost is not always the indicator, but boy, there is a corollary. And so that kind of brings us back into our line of work as we kind of wrap up the, the show here is, as you say, cost is often perceived as a proxy for quality and for value. And uneducated buyers do that. You walk into a store, if I know nothing about wines, but I'm expecting to have a really nice date, right. uh, I'm not going to go grab a, uh, a $9.99. I'm going to say, you know, what, what have you got? And, and maybe this date isn't worth $199.99. Right. I don't think I've ever right. paid that for a bottle of wine. But somewhere in there, and yet you might get home and it could be, ah! Conversely, yeah. sometimes you find these amazing deals from places down in Argentina or maybe um, parts of Spain where the cost of living isn't so bad. So now into the cybersecurity tool sets, we take a look at the capabilities that we can bring an organization. You had talked about some of the management tools that we could bring in, communications, heat maps, five by fives, risk models, et cetera. Typically, as a CISO, we're not in here rolling up our sleeves, playing with different products, uh, as they say, monitoring stuff and, and working at it. But are there any values that you found out there, something that punches above its weight class with regard to a security tool set or a security resource that you might want to tune CISOs into, not necessarily as a product endorsement, but just simply to say, hey, have you ever looked at this? I would name specific products, except uh, to your 18-month rule. Pricing is is going to alter during that experience as well. So instead, what I'm going to say is there's a trend. There's a broad stroke trend, and that is gamble. Be willing to gamble a little bit. Be willing to risk on startups because very often the most clever, most innovative, most brand new, cool kick butt thing that's come out there in cybersecurity is a tiny crew of you know a dozen people that had this cool idea and wanted to get this thing started. And when there are a dozen people, you can probably get in pretty cheap. Versus once they're highly successful, all of a sudden the uh, the price goes up tremendously. So those those moments of low cost, high return on investment are very often found in those smaller startups. And of course, there's the risk that you buy them and the next year they're gone, and that's the trade off with that. But but if you want that value proposition, go go look at your startup community. There's some outstandingly good stuff coming out every day. And and being a small business guy and having done startups, I love that recommendation. So any last thoughts that you want to offer before we wrap up the show? Anything that you can kind of think you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, just, again, I want to praise you guys for your show. I, I, love, I love your show, and I think you guys are doing a great service to the community. I, I hope your listeners are loyal and appreciate the wisdom they're getting from you guys uh, and from your guests as well. And I just think it's, it's outstanding. So big fan. Well, if they weren't loyal, they wouldn't be listening this far. They'd already tuned <laughs> up by now. So for any of you who can hear these words... Two thumbs up. Well, then, so 
Alan Alford, thank you so much for being part of our show. And to all our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed learning about all the different discussions we've had. The topic that I, I really picked up out of this is that three-legged idea of maturity, risk, and business objective, that you bring that to your executives and that's your measuring stick for success and also for communication. As always, if you like the show, share it with somebody else. Maybe there's someone else who could benefit from the show as much as you have. So again, this is G. Marcardi, and thank you again for being a listener and stay safe out there.